Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. That's the text in front of us this morning. The title of the message is The Vanity of Wisdom. The Vanity of Wisdom. We said in our opening week that Solomon is a bit of a pessimistic writer. And uh, the way he writes is a bit dark. But I think he paints for us such a clear picture by the literary devices that he uses. And so after the pessimistic reality that Solomon paints for us in verses 1 through 11, that pessimistic reality being all is vanity, that's the conclusion. Everything is vanity. Now Solomon will spend much of the rest of this book of Ecclesiastes showing us that every single escape route escape route from that reality of vanity is going to be shut off. There is not a good escape route from the reality that all is vanity. They've all been shut off. And so Solomon begins by taking us on a spiritual and intellectual quest this morning. He sets himself to study all that can be known, all that can be observed, all that can be learned, all that can be acquired under the sun. And what does he learn at the end of the day? Well, he learns that if you seek refuge from vanity in wisdom, you will soon find that life is crooked and cannot be straightened. It's important to note that Solomon isn't saying that wisdom has no value. Solomon's not telling us that there's no value in wisdom. He's telling us that there is no ultimate reality in wisdom, no ultimate uh, uh, value in wisdom. But he's not telling us that wisdom has no value at all. As a matter of fact, just in the next chapter, Solomon will say this, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, "...then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly." There is more gain in light than in darkness. Again, Solomon is is not making the point here that there is no value in wisdom, but rather wisdom will fail to solve the problem of life, namely that life is Havel. Life is like a puff of wind. Nothing that you can get your hands on, a vapor, a breath, here one moment and then gone the next. Solomon's saying wisdom cannot solve that reality. Not that wisdom has no use, that wisdom cannot answer that ultimate question. Wisdom cannot make that under-the-sun reality go away. And so Solomon will argue this morning and in the chapters to come that wisdom and pleasure and work and possessions and the list goes on and on and on That those are often bubbles that we seek to live inside of so that we can insulate ourselves from this all-is-vanity reality. I mean, just think about your own life here for just a moment. Perhaps you live in one of these bubbles trying to insulate yourself from the reality that all of life under the sun is vanity. And perhaps the bubble that you've put yourself in is the bubble of wisdom. Solomon's got a lot to say about that in our text this morning. Perhaps the bubble that you've sought to live in is the bubble of pleasure or work or possessions, all that you can gain. Friends, let me tell you that the book of Ecclesiastes sets out to burst our bubbles. And the needle, the sharp point that Solomon will use to burst our bubbles, it's death. Because death will take away all your wisdom, death will take away all your pleasure, death will take away all your work, and death will take away all your possessions. Naked you came into the world, and you will depart with nothing in hand. 
Death is the ultimate reality. Death is the great reality facing all human beings as they go about their business on earth. Death is the one ultimate certainty, yet we busy ourselves and try to insulate ourselves so that we do not have to consider this one great reality. With that being said, let's turn our attention to our text this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. This is Solomon writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and these are the words that he pens. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly." I have perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three points on your outline this morning. Let me give them to you up front. That will please some of you, others that will dissatisfy. But I'm going to do it anyway. Here are the three points as they come on your outline this morning. Perhaps this will better help you take notes if you don't have an actual outline in front of you. Point number one is this, a daunting task. A daunting task. We'll look at verses 12 through 13a. And we'll see this daunting task that Solomon sets out on. Secondly, we'll see that Solomon comes to a disappointing conclusion His daunting task leads him to a disappointing conclusion, verses 13b through verse 15. And then lastly, we'll see Solomon learned a difficult lesson, a difficult lesson in verses 16 through 18. So a daunting task, a disappointing conclusion, and then lastly, a difficult lesson. We'll seek to study the passage under those headings. Point number one, look at verses 12 through 13, a daunting task here. Solomon says this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. That is a daunting task, my friends. To seek and to search out by wisdom all, all all-encompassing, all-inclusive, nothing left out of what is done under heaven. Solomon begins here by restating his credentials for us, just as he did when he opened chapter 1. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, this short sentence here is actually helpful for us in determining that Solomon is the valid author, I believe, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Because only King Solomon, after David, ruled over Israel from Jerusalem. And so I think, here again, Solomon is our author. Uh, Some other uh, commentators and pastors would would deny that fact. I I would absolutely hold to the fact that the author of the text in front of us is King Solomon himself. 
can't dogmatically prove that because he doesn't say that. He doesn't claim that he is the author like he does in other of his writing. But I think that is clear here. The point is that of all people, Solomon had the resources to accomplish. Solomon had the resources to make all the investigations that will follow in this book. Solomon's just restating the fact here that, that I, I am in a prominent place. I have everything at my disposal to investigate all that takes place under the sun. Note Solomon's task here in verse 13. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I mean, Solomon was internationally famous for his great wisdom. He was known far and wide for his great wisdom. If the answers to the seeming emptiness of life could be found by wisdom, then Solomon was the one who could find them. You might remember that Solomon became king, and as he became king, God gave him the opportunity of a lifetime. Solomon was permitted to ask God for anything that he wished, for anything that he wished. And what was his request? What did he ask of the Lord when permitted anything that he wished? Well, Solomon, instead of asking for power or for wealth, asked for wisdom and understanding. Why? So that he might be able to govern, to understand, and to govern God's people. There's a sense of humility there, right? Instead of asking for opulence, instead of asking for for wealth, Solomon asks for wisdom and for understanding so that he might be able to rightly govern God's people. And Solomon's request was exceedingly pleasing to the Lord. As a matter of fact, God replies to Solomon's request in 1 Kings. Don't turn there. Just give me your ear here for a moment. 1 Kings chapter 3. God says this, Behold, I give you a wise and a discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none shall arise like you after you. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and and honor, so that no king shall compare to you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. We talk about blessing from the Lord. And so what did Solomon do? Well, look at your Bible there. Solomon applied his heart to seek out and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. The word applied or set there, it's the Hebrew word yatan, and it means to be sincere or to be honest. Solomon's quest, it was sincere, it was honest. His pursuit of wisdom was with all his heart. This was no flippant search. The heart in Hebrew encompasses all the inner life, all that is in a man or all that is in a woman. It's the control center of all of your mental, all of your emotional, and all of your spiritual faculties. The thoroughness or the completeness of Solomon's seeking is amplified by the verbs seek and search out. He set his heart, he gave himself diligently to seeking and searching out. Well, these two verbs here, they are beautifully colored in the Hebrew language. The word seek there means to search deeply or or to investigate the roots of a matter. It's to drill down and it's to, to penetrate in depth a matter, to seek. To search out, on the other hand, means to search thoroughly over a widespread area, to examine something from all sides 
almost like a jeweler would look at a diamond from every single facet, making sure that every single cut is precise. So Solomon's saying, I'm I'm seeking and I'm searching out, I'm drilling down, and I'm searching wide. I'm looking at life from every angle possible under the sun. Put together, to see and to search out, or to seek and to search out, highlight the exhaustive and the comprehensive nature of Solomon's study. It was a diligent study. He gave his heart to it. All that he had. It's important to note here that the wisdom that Solomon speaks about in verse 13 is the wisdom of the here and now. We're not talking about heavenly wisdom. We're not talking about wisdom that comes from from an eternal perspective or the wisdom that comes from the word of God. That comes later. It's another sermon. It's another day. The wisdom that Solomon is speaking about here is the wisdom of the here and now. All that can be seen, all that can be known, all that can be experienced, all that can be done under the sun. This wisdom cannot answer life's greatest enigmas. Under the sun, wisdom has, has no satisfying answers at its end to life's greatest questions. At best, it can only show us how to live our broken lives just, quote, a little better. That's all under the sun wisdom can do. It cannot answer life's greatest questions. All it can do is offer perhaps a little bit of help to this life under the sun. So what does Solomon conclude after he set his heart to investigate by wisdom all that is done under the sun? What's his conclusion? Well, this brings us to point number two. Solomon's conclusion is disappointing. It's a discouraging conclusion. Look at verse 13b through verse 15 there in your Bible. Solomon writes, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Gave all of his heart, all of his ambition, everything in him, to seeking and to searching out wisdom under the sun. All wisdom, wisdom of all things done under the sun. And at the end, what is his conclusion? His conclusion is that it's unsatisfying. It's disappointing. For all of his search, for everything that Solomon hoped to gain by insight, for all that he hoped to gain by solutions to life's biggest questions. Remember week one, I said that all people are asking at least four fundamental questions. Question number one, how did I get here? That's the question of origin. How did I get here? Where did I come from? Then there's the question of significance. Who am I? Who am I? Then there's the question of purpose. What am I here for? And then lastly, there's the question of destiny, and that is where am I going? Where am I going? How did I get here? Who am I? What am I here for? And where am I going? And so Solomon, after he has given his heart Searching out by wisdom all that is done under the sun says, I cannot in a satisfying manner give answer to life's greatest questions. And so Solomon concludes his search with three findings, three what I think are disappointing findings. Look at your Bible there. First of all, Solomon says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's an unhappy business 
As a matter of fact, that short phrase, unhappy business, carries the idea of a heavy burden or a sore travail. It's a heavy burden. Solomon is speaking about the restless striving to find significance by acquiring knowledge and wisdom. As a matter of fact, the word business or task here in verse 13, it only occurs in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it basically means busyness that's humbling. To be busy about a task that humbles me. Deep within each human being, God has implanted the urge to seek truth, to understand our place and our purpose in his creation. But as sinful human beings, the desired result is fraught with frustration and with failure. Under the sun, by man's own wisdom, we cannot satisfactorily answer life's greatest and most foundational questions. There's likely a play on the word man here. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man, he says, to be busy with. The word man here, it's the Hebrew word Adam. It's where Adam got his name, Adam, or man. Thinking back to Adam, we realize that God did indeed give Adam the task of searching out by wisdom all of God's works. What happened? What happened? Sin came careening into the world. And now it is a heavy burden for the children of Adam Because we labor under the curse of sin. You see, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a disaster, not a blessing. Without God, the quest for truth and for eternity is fruitless. Apart from God, life's biggest, most foundational questions do not receive a satisfactory answer. It's fruitless, and therefore it's frustrating. Matter of fact, Solomon's going to use the word a little bit later, vexation. It's, it's not only frustrating, but it's borderline angering. That I cannot find an answer to life's greatest questions. Again, the scope of Solomon's writing here is under the sun. We're going to talk about above the sun. We're going to talk about it later. The scope of Solomon's writing here is wisdom under the sun. Without God, the quest for truth and for eternity are fruitless And so the longer that Solomon looks for answers, the longer that Solomon tries to find significant answers, the harder he tries to understand the significance of life, the more frustrated he becomes with all of life's unanswerable questions. Think about the hamster for a second. Uh, perhaps you in your home uh, have a hamster. We, I had hamsters growing up. Uh, Jody and I had a hamster before we had children in married life. And uh, maybe you have a hamster. I think about this hamster on the hamster wheel. He runs and he runs and he runs all day long. He runs and he runs and he runs. But in the end, he gets nowhere. We talked about the treadmill last week. It's the, the same mental picture here. Mankind cannot separate himself from the futility that besets him. Try as hard as you like. The reality is set in stone. Apart from God, life's greatest questions have no answer that is satisfying. Mankind thinks and he plans. This he can scarcely avoid because he wants to know that his life is going somewhere. We said last week that life under the sun is like a merry-go-round, right? You get on and you end up getting off at the same place that you got on. There's no real progression. At the end, when you exit the merry-go-round, you didn't go anywhere at least as life under the sun wisdom is concerned. But God has implanted this desire for wisdom in the heart of man. 
And he has done it, I'm convinced, to teach us that try as we will, we are finite. We are created beings, and we cannot figure this out on our own. We need him. For all of our research, for all of our technology, for all of our study, for all of our philosophy, for all the volumes that are in life's library, we cannot give satisfying answers to life's most significant questions. And I think that God has ordered things this way so that we realize that we cannot do it on our own. To do so leads to frustration rather than resolution. And some may think that this is a uh, cruel uh, thing that God has done here. It's a cruel device of God to, to institute a system of futility. But actually, I think it's evidence of God's mercy and his grace. I think it's, it's evidence of God's great love. He built within us the desire and the need for that which brings purpose and fulfillment to life. And this built-in desire creates a restlessness in us for significance. And we know, just like Augustine, that that wrestling for significance remains restless until we find our rest in God alone. Many equate wisdom with success. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Our world, our culture that we live in, equates wisdom with success. I mean, how many times are we told growing up, go to an Ivy League university and earn the highest academic degree, and then you'll be among the intellectual elites of our nation and our world. You'll be on top. You will have climbed the ladder. You will have arrived intellectually as far as wisdom is concerned. But let me just, just encourage you to consider the Western world that we live in for just a moment here. We have more widespread education than any civilization in history, but are we satisfied as a result? We're more technologically advanced, but are we happier as a result? For all that we know, is the hunger for significance satisfied? I would submit to you that it's not, and that it can never be. If a good education is high on your priority list, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But to think that more and better education is the answer to the quest for significance is to make one of life's most serious errors. Why? Well, because information in the mind cannot satisfy the desires of the heart or tame the unruliness of the soul. Wisdom is great. We're not, Solomon's not encouraging us to toss the baby out with the bathwater here. He's just saying, in the end... Wisdom and knowledge cannot be. They make a paltry substitute if you try to make them your God. If you try to make them ultimate. As the search for answers continues, Solomon begins to see that only one person can answer life's ultimate questions, and that is the creator himself. And Solomon, for the first time in Ecclesiastes, introduces the Creator to us in verse 13. And it's interesting to know that Solomon mentions God 40 times-ish, 40-ish times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But Solomon always refers to God as Elohim, not Yahweh. Refers to him as Elohim. Never Yahweh, never Jehovah. You see, Elohim is the mighty God. Elohim is the glorious God of creation who exercises sovereign power. But Jehovah, on the other hand, is the covenant God, 
The God of revelation who is eternally self-existent and yet graciously relates himself to sinful man. You ask yourself, well, why does Solomon refer to God only in terms of his name being Elohim? Well, that's because Solomon is dealing exclusively with what he sees again under the sun. So it's God's impersonal name, Elohim. We'll hear more about Elohim as we progress in our study. But we see here uh, in verse uh, 13 that it's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. It's disappointing. It's discouraging. It's frustrating. The second thing that we see here, look at verse 14. Solomon says, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity like a striving after the wind. Solomon is acknowledging the frustration of life here. The works of man oftentimes have high objectives, but they produce unsatisfactory results. Albert Einstein was known for many things, including the theory of relativity. Solomon, on the other hand, was known for his more fundamental human theory, and that's the theory of futility. The theory of futility. I mean, Solomon's exhaustive search for answers was met with failure. In the end, he came up empty-hearted and empty-handed. All his wisdom and all his resources could not turn up answers to life's most basic questions. I mean, here's Solomon trying to make order out of chaos, and he just can't do it in his own mind. He can't, he can't resolve all the inconsistencies. He can't make sense of it all. Many intelligent minds have reached the same conclusion. Consider just for example, and the list of examples is expansive, but consider for example here the infamous atheist Richard Dawkins, who stated this. Dawkins said that life, human existence, is neither good nor evil. It's neither kind nor cruel. It's just simply callous. It's indifferent to all suffering, and it lacks all purpose. I mean, here is a mind that according to the intellectual standards of the world is brilliant. Brilliant. And yet this is his assessment of life. Life is just callous. Life doesn't care about you. It's indifferent to suffering. And at the end of the day, it seems to lack all sense of purpose when all is said and done. Could it be that we like Richard Dawkins, like even Solomon here, are looking but not seeing? Are we so in tune with the visible that we completely, or the visible rather, that we completely miss the invisible? Consider this story here. A Native American was visiting New York City. Walking with a friend near the center of Manhattan, the Indian suddenly stopped his companion and whispered, Wait, I hear a cricket. His friend was disbelieving. A cricket in downtown New York? That's impossible. The cacophony of sounds from passing taxis, impatient honking, people shouting, brakes screeching, and the subway roaring would make it virtually impossible to hear a cricket, even if one were present. But the Indian was insistent. He stopped his friend, and he began to crisscross the street and the sidewalks with his head cocked to one side, intently listening. Then... In a large cement planter where a tree was growing, he finally found the cricket and he held it up for his friend's benefit. Amazed. Amazed, his friend asked how he could possibly have heard the cricket. 
And then reaching into his pocket, the Indian grasped some coins. He held them waist high, and then he dropped them on the sidewalk. Everyone within a block turned to look in their direction. What's the, what's the significance here? Well, the significance is it all depends on what you're listening for. It all depends on what you're looking for. We don't have enough crickets in our heads. We don't listen for them. Perhaps you've spent all your life searching for a handful of change and you've missed the real sound of life. Well, the meaning of striving after the wind, which is how Solomon ends this short phrase here. He says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity. And he concludes here, and a striving after the wind. This is a challenging short phrase to, to distill here. But without a doubt, it carries the idea of having an ambition for something that's unattainable. I mean, imagine for a second. Have you ever tried to catch the wind in your hands? Well, that would be futile. You, you, you can't reach out and grab the wind and put it, put it in your pocket for later and save it. That's ridiculously futile. Solomon has observed that trying to acquire the wisdom of all things done under the sun will always fail to satisfy your soul. But it's interesting to note that there's another way that you can translate this phrase here, striving after the wind. It can also be translated, and I think faithfully translated, shepherding the wind. Shepherding the wind. You see, Solomon depicts how restlessly men and women can analyze life without ever living for God. Ecclesiastes reveals for us that the search to answer all of life's conundrums is like trying to shepherd the wind, literally trying to coerce the wind into a pen. It's futile. It's futile. It'll leave you frustrated, disheartened, discouraged, and disappointed. Look at what else Solomon says here. Verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I mean, Solomon is just listing the ways here that his search ended in disappointment. What's crooked can't be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. This phrase explains why Solomon is so frustrated. Because there are twists and there are gaps in his understanding. No matter how hard Solomon tries, no matter how hard we try, this incredibly wise king cannot straighten life's anomalies or neatly package what he's learned into an orderly system. He can't make sense of it. He can't, he can't line up everything that he's learned in a nice and tidy manner. He can't put it in a box and tie a pretty bow on it. There will always be wants and problems and shortages and wars and injustices. As a matter of fact, uh, Solomon's going to take up the issue of injustice later in this book. As long as the earth stands, these crooked and wanting conditions will be unavoidable. Solomon is absolutely perplexed. But the words crooked and straight here, they're actually of deeper meaning because they, they, they point us to moral conditions. You see, sin has perverted what God has created. And so not only can man not know, not only can man not find answers, but man can't fix life's problems either. 
We can't fix our brokenness. We can't fix our own fallenness. Try as you might. And yes, people do this. People in the church, for the love of Jesus Christ, do this week in and week out. We call it moralism. Moralism is the religion of some people, some faithful churchgoers. They just try to live good. They just, just try to fix life, try to better things up. They put a Band-Aid here and a Steri strip there and some, some masking tape here, perhaps some duct tape or Gorilla Glue there, but you can't fix it. You can't fix your fallenness. You can't fix your brokenness. You cannot straighten what is crooked. When you think about the effects of the fall here, we suffered long-standing family conflicts estrangement from former friends, wrongs done to us by someone in power, disease or disability, our own moral failings, our own sin. And the list goes on and on. There's always something in life that we wish we could bend back into shape, something that we could fix. No matter how hard we try, we cannot bend our lives under our own power in a different direction. We can't. It's frustrating. Perplexing, it's disappointing, if you're even trying. There's people we cannot manage, problems we can't solve, pressures we cannot escape. Life's condition is a mystery, and it cannot be understood or changed by those who are walking through it according to the wisdom of this world. The philosophy of under the sun. Solomon will tell us later that God is the great bender and that God will straighten things. So we do have great hope. Matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, he says, Consider the work of God who can make things straight that he has made crooked. Well, God can make things straight. And thank God that there is a day coming when God will make everything straight. Everything that is crooked, everything that is bent, everything that has been touched and marred and tainted by the effects of sin will be straightened out. What was broken will be made whole. What was lost will be recovered. What is marred will be made beautiful. We say, come Lord Jesus, come. Solomon goes on to say, what is lacking cannot be counted. Not only can life not be straightened out, it's bent or it's crooked, but what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, life is like an account that refuses to balance. If you're a numbers people, if you're an accountant, if you're the manager of your home finances... This is a big-time frustration for you when you get to the end of the check register and the numbers don't add up. You can't account for it. It won't balance. We can tell there's a deficit, but we can't figure out exactly what it is. And even if we make an adjustment to get everything to add up correctly, deep down we know somehow we're fudging the figures. And that's what Solomon is saying here. What's, what's lacking can't be counted. And if you try according to the world's wisdom, to straighten out what is bent or crooked, if you try to, to make the, uh, the account balances congruent, in the end, if you're doing it in your own power, you're just fudging the figures. You're robbing from Peter to pay Paul. It's disappointing. It's disappointing. Well, this leads us to number three, the difficult lesson Solomon learns here in verses 16 through 18. Look there in your Bible. Solomon says, I said in my heart, 
I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I have applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is also much, here's the word, vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. You see, after, after Solomon fails to find significance and purpose and wisdom, what Solomon does here is he has a little heart-to-heart with himself. Or maybe you could say he has a little mind-to-mind with himself. He says, I said in my heart, and he's talking to himself here, Heart, I have acquired great wisdom. This is what I've done, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. I mean, Solomon is recounting his own life story to himself. This approach is natural for anyone who looks for answers under the sun, apart from an eternal perspective. Apart from God, we will always look inward for wisdom and for answers. We'll always turn in instead of turning to God who rules eternity. And friends, this results in failure every single time. The source of truth and the source of wisdom are never found inside man. If we have any revelation of God, if we have any revelation of the Son of God, if we have any revelation of the character of God, if we have any revelation of the purpose of man, if we have any revelation of the origin of man, if we have any revelation of the destiny of man, it's because it has come by way of divine revelation. Because man cannot concoct sufficient, satisfactory answers to those questions on his own. Turning inward will end in failure and futility every single time. Look at verse 17. Solomon says, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also was but a striving after the wind. You see, Solomon sought not only to know wisdom, but he also set his heart to know madness and folly. We're going to see some madness and folly when we pick back up next week. These two words here are a foreshadowing into our text for next week because madness and folly refer to the crazy foolishness of living life in disobedience to God. And so essentially, Solomon is trying to understand the difference between right and wrong here. He's saying, hey, I I, I sought to answer life's questions by way of wisdom, but I also swung to the the other side of the pendulum and I sought to understand life by way of madness and foolish disobedience. Solomon's going to give himself to every pleasure known to man. Again, we'll see that next week, and we'll see that that does not answer his question for uh, significance and purpose either. Solomon plunged himself into every pleasure cesspool known to man, and in the end, he will come up empty-handed and empty-hearted, and so will we if we try to mimic his model. So, stay tuned for our study next week. God wants his special creatures to know him, but apart from divine revelation and faith, that is impossible. It is like striving after the wind. And so don't seek wisdom from inside. Seek wisdom from from above, right? That's what Paul told us in Colossians, right? Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. 
Lastly, in verse 18, Solomon concludes this. He says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. I think Solomon has realized here that to try and solve the problems of life by way of wisdom only serves to enlarge the problem. You see, the more knowledge, the more wisdom that the king obtains, the more that Solomon tries to pack in and cram in, the deeper his grief becomes. Each new tidbit of information only plunges Solomon deeper into his hopelessness and helplessness. Everything he learns confirms his humanity. Everything he learns confirms his sinfulness. Everything he learns confirms his accountability. Everything he learns confirms his, his eventual inevitable death. Which is the ultimate vanity. With an increasingly heavy heart, Solomon's search is driving him to a heart-wrenching conclusion. And that conclusion is that he cannot save himself. He cannot save himself. And friends, we oftentimes do the exact same thing that Solomon is trying to do here. We, we seek out lesser, insufficient saviors to try to inoculate ourselves from life's realities in a Genesis 3 fallen world. And in the end, if you give your life to that, you will come up empty-hearted and empty-handed. The more knowledge we acquire, the more we realize just how ignorant we really are. Socrates once said, I'm the wisest of all the Greeks. Why? Because I know of all men that I know nothing. I know nothing. Socrates is just a Greek philosopher. The more we're educated in current events, the more serious the world's problems appear. The better we understand the vastness of our universe, the more insignificant we seem to become. In other words, increasing in knowledge oftentimes compounds our sense of futility. T.S. Eliot once said this, all of our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. The more you learn, the more you learn that you really don't know anything. It's been said, the more you understand, the more you ache. The search for meaning and happiness cannot be accomplished apart from God. Not only is it futile, but it also becomes maddening. This is that word vexation here. It's a vexation. It's frustrating. It's angering to try to answer life's most significant questions from an under-the-sun perspective. Well, again, where does all the encouragement come from now? What are we, what are we to leave here uh, fixated on? Well, at this point in our study, you may be asking yourself, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? Ecclesiastes just might be one of the most discouraging books I have ever read. Matter of fact, I was uh, exchanging uh, a message with a dear, dear lady in our church this week, and she was uh, stating that she had heard someone quote this exact thing before, that I haven't even set myself to study the book of Ecclesiastes because as I just read the opening chapters, it just looks so discouraging and so depressing. And why in the world would I, would I study that? Well, friends, if you feel the weight of discouragement and you perceive the weary frustration of life, then let me encourage you that Ecclesiastes is doing just what it is intended to do. It's accomplishing its purpose. 
You see, we cannot forget that Ecclesiastes, again, and I'm going to belabor this and kick this dead horse over and over and over down the road as we continue our study, but Ecclesiastes focuses on the world from an earthly, under-the-sun perspective. If we try and make sense of the world, if we set out uh, to, to search for significance and purpose and fulfillment without God in the picture, we will never escape the reality of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. All, all is vanity. All is vanity. But having said that, at the end of all our trying to understand life under the sun, God is waiting for us. And he is waiting in the person and work of his own son, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, reminds us that Jesus Christ is the power of God, but that Jesus Christ is also the wisdom of God. You see, Jesus entered into all the vanity and into all the vexation of life under the sun to show us what true righteousness really looks like. To show us that we don't have to give ourselves to madness and to folly. Furthermore, if we follow the wisdom of Christ, eventually life will add up. Eventually the balance at the end of everything will add up. It may not seem to add up this side of eternity, but we have the sure promise and hope that our present frustration will not last forever. Indeed, our King is coming to make all things new. Do you know this king? Do you know him by way of repentance and faith? Or are you still trying to cling to all the lesser gods found under the sun in an attempt to isolate yourself, insulate yourself in a bubble looking for purpose, significance, fulfillment, and joy when it cannot be found in those places? Repent. Flee to Jesus. Turn to Christ. Turn from your sin. Fall at the foot of the cross and receive his mercy and his grace that is available free for anyone who comes and calls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. As we have studied the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, it does seem to clearly be pessimistic literature. It does seem to be discouraging at times. But Lord, we have to keep in mind, we must keep in view that Solomon is writing about life under the sun. And we as believers know, and I want to encourage anyone who may be listening this morning who may not be a believer in Jesus Christ, who may not be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of their own, but a righteousness that comes by faith, I want to encourage us all that there is more than life under the sun. I think about the old hymn, we're called to turn our eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, I pray that the book of Ecclesiastes would continue to do just what it was intended to do and that is to cause us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that the book of Ecclesiastes would cause us to hunger and to yearn and to long for what is better, what is enduring, what is satisfying, and what is saving. Father, would you do this work for your name and your renown. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.